Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things that it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a podcast host. I'm a professor. I'm uh, working on a farm. I do a lot of things, mostly with an interest in how we can make food more sustainably and take care of more people in terms of their health. And one aspect of that that we can't overlook these days is COVID-19. And with new variants circulating and with the specter of surges happening around the world, it's important to have early detection. And detection can come in many forms, but sometimes we're waiting a week or two for results, right? Or even days, but it's too long. We've already experienced the problem or exposed others. And are there faster ways to do it, better ways to do it? ways to do the test using different levels of synthetic biology. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Nguyen. He's from the Wies Institute of Biologically Inspired Engineering, which sounds like a really cool, really cool place to work. Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nguyen. Thank you. Yeah, so this is really cool because anyone who's listening to the podcast understands COVID-19, the pandemic, and many of the health implications that we've seen come from it. How important is early detection in solving a pandemic? Uh, well, Kevin, I think that most epidemiologists have told us it, it's an essential part of our toolbox for dealing with the spread of a pandemic. Um, and especially early on in a pandemic and throughout uh, a pandemic that's still raging like the one that we have right now, you really need to understand where the the virus is spreading and how quickly it's spreading so that you can implement uh, measures to kind of tamp down that spread, such as uh, social uh, measures, as well as technical technology measures, such as vaccines um, and, and things of that sort. So surveillance is key in uh, trying to prevent the virus from spreading. And so currently we're doing tests of this kind of surveillance, but how is that being done right now? And, and is that really enough? Sure. So right now, there's two main ways of doing testing for individuals. Um, one is uh, the gold standard, and that is something called PCR. So a PCR test or an RT-PCR um, test basically takes the virus from an individual sample, such as you know a nasal swab that we've seen uh, people get. And what it does is it amplifies up that genomic signature of the virus. So you're actually looking at the viral genome and you're amplifying it up so that you can test it. Uh, unfortunately, it, this, again, this is the gold standard, but unfortunately it requires a laboratory. So you need a laboratory, you need a technician, um, and it, it's, it, it takes quite some time for that sample to go to the laboratory, the laboratory to process the samples, and then the information get back out. Um, the faster way is called an antigen test. Now, the antigen test is really fast, um, and it basically works very similar to a pregnancy test. 
um, where you can kind of do the the the, the sample uh, and the analysis on the actual uh, device, and you get a result uh, relatively quickly. Um, unfortunately, it does not test the actual genomic material of the virus. It only detects proteins that the virus has made or antibodies that you have made to the virus. Um, so a lot of times it's less sensitive and it doesn't detect uh, an ongoing infection many times. Yeah, so there's this weird balance between speed and precision, right? That you really, you can't have both. And there also is a you know cost difference between them too that you can't just run out and you know get a PCR test this afternoon you know so so that's really the big problem we're up against. What about false positives and false negatives? Yeah, false positives and false negatives are they they happen with any test. No test is you know absolute in terms of of its uh, its ability to detect one hundred percent of the time and not give you any false positives or false negatives. And that's kind of why, you know, for every test that you put out there, uh, it has to be approved. And so it goes through this very rigorous process where um, the government bodies make sure that we don't have uh, very high numbers of false positives and false negatives. But those are a problem. Even, even with the best tests, those are problems. Yeah, so what about the solution that kind of marries the two? Like the solution that your laboratory group, uh, what has your group developed? Yeah, so what we've developed is we've, we, we've tried to take the best of both worlds. Um, so the speed of antigen tests and the, the mechanism and the, the, the high sensitivity of PCR in that it is actually detecting the, the viral genomic material. Um, and we've been able to create kind of a hybrid of sorts um, where we have a sensor that can detect the, the, the actual genetic material of the virus and amplify that up so that you can detect very, very small amounts of it. And it does this um, at the point of care, which is, you know, right at where the patient is. You don't have to bring it to a lab. Um, it directly detects the virus from the breath of the patient. Um, and so what we came up with is a COVID-19 detecting face mask um, where all of the, the key steps that we have in the laboratory are pretty much shrunk down and freeze dried into the mask um, to create this uh, shelf stable sensor that can detect COVID-19. Yeah, this is cool. So it's a biological sensor that uh, that you're, is freeze dried and inside a mask. So it falls into the broader care, care the broader category of wearables. And so this, and we're going to see more and more of this, I think. And 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 we'll talk more about that in a minute. But how fast can your technology identify a positive case? Right. So our prototype right now. Um, so we've made hundreds of these and our prototypes right now, they, you know, because they're handmade, there is a, a, a range. It's not perfect because it's not, you know, mass manufactured to a precise uh, specification. And so right now, the longest it takes is 90 minutes. And so that's the amount of time that we've cited in our in our research paper. Um, but we do get results that are a lot faster, which are less than one hour. And so what we're hoping is, as we move from this prototype to a manufacturing product, we're, we're hoping to get that, that, that range, that window down to around an hour. Um, but right now we have to cite uh, an hour and a half because that's the longest time that we've seen. 
Yeah, and that's only going to get faster with more standardization of the manufacturing process and probably some tweaks you'll be able to do molecularly too. But what about with um, rates of false positive and negative? If you have good speed, how's the precision? Yeah, so uh, so the sensitivity, um, surprisingly to us, because you know everything, we're, we're taking these biological reactions that just normally happen in the lab, we're freeze drying it. And, and we you know, normally when you do that, you take a hit with how efficient your your reaction is. Um, it, it's kind of like uh, instant ramen. When, when you freeze dry and you make instant ramen, it's it's not as good as, you know, fresh ramen, but it, you know, it, it, it'll hit the spot when, in a pinch, right? Um, and so in our case, we were, we were pleasantly surprised um, that uh, our freeze dried sensor, our freeze dried COVID-19 sensor was as sensitive as the RT-PCR tests that are WHO approved right now. Um, and so we're on par with the gold standard. Um, and, and I should also say, if you, if you take the system that we have, it's based on a CRISPR enzyme and uh, a different way of amplifying uh, the viral genome. If we do that in the lab, it's even more sensitive by at least two orders of magnitude than what's out there for the RT-PCR tests. Yeah, that's the part I can't wait to get to because the technical side on this seems to have some interesting angles. But let's just talk a little bit more about the test itself. Yeah. Is there like a threshold for viral titer? Meaning like if you were recently infected in the last couple of days, is there a chance that it would not be detected because of a low copy number? I think that chance is always there. Um, I have to be you know completely honest and realistic about it. Just because people's uh, immune responses vary so drastically with this virus that you could be infected and yet your viral titers might be a lot lower than average, than the, the average distribution. Um, but the sensitivity that we have that matches that of the WHO is, it's the best out there right now uh, for you to get detected. And so I think that's the best that we can do. That's really great. So we're speaking with Dr. Peter Nguyen. He's a research scientist at the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. And we're talking about wearables that can detect pathogens, namely the face mask that's been engineered to detect COVID-19 with, with the same sensitivity as the gold standard test. This is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, podcast listener, do you know the important power that you have as a science enthusiast? Don't just think of yourself as a consumer. Understand your critical role as an amplification node. You see, the sound going into your ear should not be a dead end. Your consumption of scientific information should be an important node in a complex web of dissemination. Think of yourself as a messenger, connecting the podcast topic to the folks in your networks. Share the podcast in your social media feed. Give your opinion. Share your synthesis. This is how good science grows. The enemies of science and technology have ambitious networks that share the evidence of UFOs, the flat freezing earth, and the dangers of COVID-19 vaccines. Their distribution system says food is poison. 
farmers are evil, and all the bees are dead. Such discussion exists because of the ambitious networks of a few creepy, credulous twits that are happy to share the nonsense. But there's a lot more of us than there are of them. Exploit the power of your networks to talk about technology and how it is consistent with your most deeply held values. Understand your family and friends' concerns. Then share how new technology can address the issues they care about. Remember that 70% of people are getting their flawed and bogus information from stupid social media. Counter it early and often, sharing the information you trust and find compelling. Now remember, we don't have a problem with innovation. We have a problem with communication. And getting innovation to application happens faster when you become part of the discussion. Now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Peter Nguyen. He's at the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. And he's talking about some biologically inspired engineering. It's a synthetic biology solution to the really important problem of COVID-19 detection. And really, it applies to uh, several different viruses, as we'll talk about in just a bit. So who else is involved in the development team of this particular work? So th this, this entire work is definitely a team effort. Um, so this was done at the Wies Institute and at MIT as well. Um, we're part of, uh, we, so one thing I should say is this work came out of the laboratory of Dr. Jim Collins at MIT. Um, so he is a, he pioneered synthetic biology um, many decades ago. And also I have a co-author, his name is Luis Soinkson, um, and he is uh, on the MIT side as well. And we have about a dozen different research scientists at the Wies Institute, all of which uh, contributed to this project in, in varied ways and were instrumental in making it happen. Yeah, it's really cool. There's a very good literature on the production of these types of approaches as wearables. So, um, and we'll, I guess we'll get to that in just a second, but this group in particular has been very, very um, uh, present in that space. But let's talk about technology. So you're talking about a droplet, say, or, or you know, the, the breath of somebody into a mask that gets onto some sort of detection matrix. And how do you get from that to a positive signal. And if you could walk us through that, just kind of with the amplification step and maybe the de detection step. Sure, absolutely. So uh, what we have is, so you can imagine somebody breathing on a mask, inside a mask, right? And so the, the, we know the virus is transmitted through aerosols. Um, and so when you, when you breathe, you walk, you talk, you sing, um, you're, you're shooting out viruses from your lungs. And the, the mask catches all of this and it the, the aerosols accumulate on the inside of the mask. And so what we have is we have a, a pad. It, it's a, an absorbent pad and it's placed right in front of your mouth and nose on the inside of the mask. And that is the sample collection area. And what it does is as soon as an aerosol droplet hits it, it gets absorbed into this pad and sits there. And so over time, you can imagine uh, what we found is 15 to, to 30 minutes is sufficient, but uh, even more time will allow more and more virus to get accumulated on that sample pad. 
And after there's accumulation, you need to actually activate the sensor. And so the way we do this is we have a little water reservoir that is attached to the pad. Um, and that water reservoir is activated by a button. So that's all you have to do is you just have to press a button and that's pretty much it. And so what happens is you press a button, the button actually breaks that blister and allows the water to flow through the sample pad. And so now you have all this water flowing through the sample pad and you can imagine as it flows through the sample pad, it's carrying along any virus that has accumulated on it. Um, so kind of like, kind of like the, the wave on a beach kind of pushing things uh, across the shore, right? Um, and as it moves uh, across the sample pad, at the very end of the sample pad, what it does is it hits um, where our, the actual sensor is. So the engine of our, our, our diagnostic part. Um, and this engine basically has um, different reactions that have been embedded in a, a, a cellulose matrix. Um, and so we, we've basically broken apart each part of the reactions that normally happens in the lab. For example, we have a sample prep part, which lyses the, the virus to make sure that the genomic material is released. And then we have um, an amplification part. Now, this contains primers and it contains a reaction, an enzymatic reaction to actually amplify up the, the viral genome. And then we have a detection part, which uses the CRISPR enzyme. And the CRISPR enzyme has been programmed to detect that amplified amount of DNA so that it tells us whether or not the virus is actually there. And that gives us an actual signal. And then, so, so all of these three reactions are freeze dried respectively in a spatial position so that they happen one after another. Um, and to add another component to it, we also put in freeze dried um, timers. So these are timers that are freeze dried into the sensors between each, each reaction so that each reaction happens for a certain amount of time and then moves into the next reaction. Um, so you have a, a bit of timing that we've engineered into the system as well. And at the very end, uh, we have something called a lateral flow strip. Um, and what that is, it, it's basically very similar, if not identical to a typical um, pregnancy test where you get a band or you get two bands based on um, whether or not the test is positive or negative. Okay, so let me just unpack that just a touch. And, you know, um, let me know if we go in proprietary areas that we can't discuss. Yeah. But the, for the first basic reaction is a lysis of the virus, and that seems to be pretty straightforward. Yep. The next step would be the um, amplification step. And amplification isn't really being amplified like PCR per se. It's probably just primers binding and then a polymerase extending the DNA strand off the RNA template. Is that kind of where we're going in terms of amplification? That's correct. So the more technical uh, term for the amplification we're doing, it's isothermal amplification. So there's no need to control the temperature up and down. Um, what we've been able to do is to find primers uh, and we're using something called uh, RT-RPA. It's, it's a long acronym. It, it stands for reverse transcriptase uh, recombinase polymerase amplification. So it's a different mode of nucleic acid amplification that has come out in the past decade. Um, and what it basically does is it allows you to amplify DNA using enzymes 
uh, instead of cycling through different temperatures. And we've been able to get it to work for the SARS-CoV-2 genome at room temperature, which it doesn't sound like it's a big deal, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge deal in the lab because in the lab, you usually require temperatures of upwards of 37 degrees for a lot of these isothermal amplification steps to work. And we were able to get it down to room temperature, which is what we need for the mask to work. Yeah, this is really cool. So this isothermal amplification methods have been increasing in popularity in the last, you know, like you say, the last decade, but really in the last year or two. And we even have an episode in the podcast series of looking at populations of fish hmm. because you can, as an ecologist, take this into the field take your sample from fish slime and be able to amplify specific DNA that would tell you which kind of fish species it really is. Some things look very similar. And it's the same kind of idea that you can be at one temperature and uh, in a very generally restrictive temperature of room temperature and be able to amplify DNA. That's really cool. Now you start bringing in the, the Cas9 side of this, which is that the CRISPR-associated enzyme. That is this just identifying a discrete site in the SARS-CoV-2 genome that allow it to, to, you know, provide the sensitivity of detection or what, why is that enzyme necessary? Sure. So we're actually using Cas12a, um, which is a relative of Cas9. Um, and we need to use that because it, it adds on two things. And one is it adds on a specificity step um, as well as uh, well, it, it adds on a specificity and sensitivity step um, in that it's very highly sensitive to the, the sequence. The sequence can differ by only one single base pair, so one letter of the DNA, DNA and the CRISPR will not detect it. So it, it's very sensitive for that. And you can imagine that would be highly useful for detecting things like variants, for example, uh, where there's like one, uh, one single nucleo nucleotide change. Yeah, so it's kind of the blessing and the curse, right? That it, it's using the guide RNA, the sequence of the guide RNA to attain the specificity. Right, that's correct. And so yeah, it's so, so, so it's really great because you can identify specific variants, but you have to know what the variants are. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, and thankfully, the, the scientific community has done an amazing job with keeping uh, on task with sequencing the virus and its variants as soon as they, they come out. Yeah, and the unvaccinated community has done a great job with giving us new interesting variants to look at. <laughs> <laughs> so, think, yeah, that's another podcast, the, the whole yeah, different one, right? Yeah, that's job security, right? I, I guess the other thought is, is uh, so you're, you're looking at, you can identify specific variants, but what about different viruses? There's two questions here. Does, do other adenoviruses cloud the assay for SARS-CoV-2? I guess they wouldn't because of specificity, but can you develop this for other viruses that are important, either influenza or Zika or something like that? Yeah, so when we originally developed this technology, we, we had an eye, this was early on in the first wave of the 2020 pandemic, um, and we had an eye on the incoming uh, flu season at that time, and we were a bit worried that with the flu coming uh, in the fall, that it might cloud the diagnostics with with uh, COVID nineteen testing, basically, 
And so we the, the mask was developed for that particular scenario where we wanted to distinguish between uh, influenza or the regular cold uh, versus COVID-19. And so the 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 great thing about the um, um, the 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 CRISPR based detection is that it allows us to easily replace the specific the detection modality for detecting different viruses by just swapping in that gRNA. Yeah, that's really cool. That's extremely powerful, and it makes me think that this is something that every physician someday will have on a name badge or, you know, people associated with hospitals or healthcare, that they will have a multitude of different sensors that all you do is run the test at the end of the day and see which ones light up. And that's one part we didn't talk about, though, was the ultimate, um, the, you know, sensor reporting part of this is how do I, how is it converted from a positive signal to something visible that I can see? Yeah, so th that's that's a very uh, great point. So what happens is when the Cas12a enzyme, with its gRNA that we've given it, finds that specific piece of DNA that is uh, that it's targeted for. In this case, it is an amplified part of the virus. Once it gets activated, it binds to that piece of DNA and it cuts it. That's what it normally has evolved to do. Um, so this particular enzyme, the Cas12a, has a unique property in that once it's activated, it becomes it's, it changes conformation and it becomes just a generalized nuclease. And so it converts from being just a hey, I need to find this piece of DNA and cut it, to now it it um, it acquires a new state where it basically goes around chewing up any piece of DNA that is around. Um, and so people think that it has evolved to do this to basically kill the cell um, that is infected with a virus, um, so that other cells around it don't uh, don't get infected. Um, and so what we've done is we've taken this property of it be, being converted to a generalized nuclease, and we have um, a synthetic piece of DNA where on one end is uh, something that binds to a part of the lateral flow assay. And the other part, you can think of it as a dumbbell, has a different part that binds to other parts of the lateral flow assay. And if you cut that piece of DNA, you get different bands based on what parts actually adhere to the lateral flow assay as it moves through. It, it, it's a bit difficult to visualize without, without seeing a, a diagram of how it works. Yeah, even with the diagram, I had to really stare at it for a long time because the paper shows some diagrams using a lax Z-base reporter. Yeah. And But it, it takes a while to really understand how it works. But it's really cool that it does. And really what you're doing and what, what you've done, and, and I really have to really underscore this for the listener, is you've, you've put together a whole bunch of very sensitive steps that in the end work. And it's really, really amazing stuff. It really is pretty exciting. And so where, where are some other applications where you have maybe see this going in the future with military or med medicine? Yeah, so so definitely the uh, the clinical aspect and also military are the, the one of the, the two major areas that we see applications um, in the short term, uh, just because there's, there's much high demand there. Uh, Areas where, for example, physicians or clinicians might be ex 
highly exposed to infectious respiratory diseases. And so you would want to monitor um, the personnel uh, as, as closely as possible right now to give them a uh, peace of mind on whether or not they're infected. Um, and so getting a daily test right now is somewhat cumbersome. And what we really wanted to do was really, really lower that barrier down for testing. So where the testing happens um, and it is kind of integrated into what you're doing during the day. Um, and so for a clinician, you have to wear a mask during the day. Um, if you're working, for example, in the COVID ward, uh, you definitely want to wear a mask. And what we want to do is, is kind of integrate testing into that seamlessly so that testing can happen and you don't even need to worry about it. You just basically take the mask off at the end of the day, activate the test, and you have a test every day that has already accumulated the sampling from you. Um, and it takes only you know uh, 90 minutes to get a result. Um, and so that, that's kind of what we're hoping for, as well as in the long run, having uh, this kind of diagnostic um, hopefully be available at your CVS because it's, it's, you know, it's shelf stable. And so anybody can take a test for any kind of respiratory infection that they're having and say, well, this is influenza. I need an antiviral versus this is the common cold or this, this is some kind of a bacterial infection. That, that's a really good point because how many times do we get the generalized cold or people claiming they have the flu when it's really just a different kind of bug? And that's a really good point. I think you should partner with places like uh, eHarmony and uh, these dating services because how many how many people um, would are you know changing their uh, their social activities around you know around other people based on the idea of they don't want to get sick, and whether it's COVID or you know you can think of a slate of other diseases, herpes or whatever, you know, are there, um, it seems like that would be a good industry because somebody who could come out with a clean mask, <laughs> you know, who knows, but, um, I guess I see this as being, uh, really one big part in, in a whole series of different wearable sensors sensors. And are there, you know, even other more applications that, you know, that, uh, that I'm missing, like, what do you see as being some of the biggest applications outside of medicine or, or military, any kind of just stuff that we'll see day to day? Well, uh, beyond just face masks, for example, uh, for, for the wearables technology in general. Um, so this, this technology can be applied here. We took it and we applied it to a face mask. Um, but the larger, broader study in our paper, we applied it to, for example, just normal clothing. Um, our, our vision is to have, uh, materials that actually sense things for us. So you can imagine having almost a programmable second skin that you can wear. Um, and this can be normal clothing. This can be face mask, or it can not even, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a wearable. It can be an environmental sensor. Um, and so the concept is to have materials that blend into everyday technology things that you wear, things that might be sitting on your table that are constantly interrogating the environment and letting you know uh, what's in the environment, uh, what you're exposed to, what your infection level is. And to do this with laboratory level precision um, in a very cheap and economical way. So where this technology can be disposable even. Uh, and, and that's, I think, is the, the, the end goal that we want to achieve.
Yeah, this is really great because you can imagine so many other uh, folks who are immunocompromised mm-hmm. that there are any number one of a slate of different potential pathogens that can cause them trouble where you could put in guide RNAs for the whole set, you know, essentially into one spot and be able to say this one, you know, for the immunocompromised is something that would tell you that perhaps you've been exposed, you know, to one of these, one of these threats or, you know, the, the, the possibilities are endless on this technology. And I, I just think it's just so fantastic. And I can imagine so many places here and in the developing world, especially where this would be just, just remarkable game changer, but how much does it cost? And when are these things going to be available? Yeah, great questions. Um, so right now, so this is our prototype. Uh, our prototype right now costs around five us dollars. So for the price of a fancy Starbucks latte, you can get a at home, uh, diagnostic tests or at point of care test, uh, basically. And what we're hoping is again, these are, this is prototyping. Um, we, we don't really, uh, buy in bulk. And so that's a very, uh, kind of, uh, high price point for, uh, this technology. What we're trying to do is work with manufacturers currently to convert this, scale it up and convert it into a commercialized product. And we think we can get the price point down. Um, significantly, we're trying to get it down to just a few dollars. Um, and so that's the price point we think where we'll be extremely competitive, uh, commercially, um, in terms of the timeline for when, uh, anybody can, can find this, uh, and order it, uh, we're working with manufacturers again, to scale it up. Cause right now everything is, it's basically made by hand in a painstaking manner. And we need to take that we need to convert it to something that can be made, uh, at scale using machines. Um, and we're working with a, a number of manufacturers. Uh, obviously, our our uh, our paper and the research that we've done has generated a lot of interest. So we're our days now are filled with talking to people from different companies and trying to figure out um, how to get this uh, this partnership arranged, basically. So we're thinking it just due to the complexity of this the situation in terms of the supply and, and the the additional technical design that needs to be done uh probably at least a year well that's that's a pretty tight timeline i hope that it happens because nobody really knows where this coronavirus thing is going and we always know that there will be another uh, another coming behind it and so it's exciting to know that this is not just effective but also agile and you got that agility well dr peter nguyen this is really really exciting and and i really do appreciate you coming on the podcast and best wishes to you and the entire group for lots of success thanks kevin it was my pleasure and then thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast and i hope today's episode inspires you to think big thoughts around interesting technology and take the little bits of the different things that we learn and see how you can put them together in exciting ways to solve real problems for people This is a really cool one that will eventually be a game changer. And I think you'll see uh, derivations of this playing big roles in many ways in the developing world as well as here. So thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but 
It has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.